Welcome to Pray for Micah. And now your host, Micah Chrisman. Welcome to the Pray for Micah podcast, where we explore art, activism, spirituality, and our cosmic insignificance slash significance. Everybody, I just want to start off by saying I'm sorry. Don't be mad at me for being off for the last month or so. Um, it was mainly because spending time with family, going on some trips, so kind of took a month off. And I feel like I deserved that after 10 episodes. It was... Uh, it was well-earned. It was like, yeah, maybe I should do that every 10 episodes. Just take a month off. It's not a bad idea. Reflect. But I also got some new camera gear. So um, I'm here. Ben Carpenter, my dear friend. Hello, everyone. He's my guinea pig for the new podcast recording equipment. All so right. well, I'm excited. We are going places. We got new gear that was not sponsored by Logitech. But <laughs> if Logitech hears this... They can uh, reimburse me for these cameras, <laughs> these webcams. That uh, plug, yeah, a plug, yeah, fake plug. Yeah, Logitech does not sponsor this podcast. In case of copyright infringement, oh, what have yeah, you? Right, right, right. <laughs> ben, how the hell are you, man? Doing well, doing well. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a been a bit. Like you said, you've been pretty, been a busy guy. Yeah. Um, no, just kind of. It's been really busy on my end as well. Uh, I got a new dog. Oh yeah. Let's hear about Loki. Loki is a 48-pound Rottweiler Husky mix, two different colored eyes, and just the sweetest little pooch uh, you could kind of gamble on. Um, no, he's, he's been doing really well. We've had him for about three weeks now, settling in really nicely. The cats aren't super sure about him yet. Well, you have Francis, our, our orange tabby, who's kind of like, you know, snuggling up to him. But he's doing great, doing great. Good, oh, man. good patio dog for sure. Yeah, and you got he's got two different colored eyes. Yeah, yeah, right. one on uh, one on the earthly plane and one on some other plane. Is uh, kind of <laughs> that's I love thing. that. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, he is a god. I mean, he is, right. He is a Norse yeah. god. So yeah, and it's yeah, it's like not a blue eye either. It's like a white eye. It's like like a White Walker from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and it's I was uh, yeah, we took him for a walk yesterday, and there was a group of uh, little eight year old girls playing in a little kiddie pool and. You know, he's a pretty cute looking dog. And so they come running over and they um, almost immediately notice the eyes. And then one of them just like locked on and she just was like, his eyes are so creepy. And she was like, deeply <laughs> disturbed by this. Um, and she just kept saying it. We were there for probably like three minutes, you know, chatting up the, the parents. And um, she just kept saying it over and over again. And she couldn't look away either. She was locked in. Oh my gosh. And even after we walked away, I heard her just saying, his eyes, his eyes. Oh God, his eyes! Oh God, his eyes! <laughs> it's gonna be somewhere like it becomes a game with her and her friends. Like, don't look in the mirror and say Loki three times. <laughs> his creepy eyes will pop up behind you. <laughs> we do, we do call it his wishing eye. So, oh, that's but cool. You, you make a wish on it, but it's not like you know, it's like a genie wish where you know, there's always like a catch to there's it. There's a catch to it, right? Yeah. It's a, a Faustian kind of bargain. Like, I want a million bucks, and you get a million, like, bucks. Like, yeah. the deer, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. No, you know what I meant, Jeannie, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> yeah, but it's to teach you a lesson, you know? That's, uh, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I um, um, was thinking about just, um, yeah, the spirit of the dog, and we were talking about how They'll be great to play with each other, him and Rayla. But Rayla's so 
like dog abusive. <laughs> not 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 totally abusive, but she uh, likes to play rough even sure, right. now that she's five. And so she loves dogs. Like give a shit about a human sure. and like loves humans too. But like when there's a dog, like okay, all manners go out the window, you know. Beav assured me that Loki the god could probably handle Rayla. He he's got a ton of energy. Um, he's a year and a half old, so you know I think he also likes to play. He can he, he plays at a variety of levels. He can play gently, and he can also go ham. I've seen him do both. So I think we can we can try it out and see how it goes, for sure. We also got a hookah going for this episode. Oh. Ben said he would only come on the show if we did the whole thing with the setup with the hookah, you know. Hookah, so. the the Paisley shirts. Uh, <laughs> I want all of it. Yeah, make sure I turn that so you can we can share it. Yeah. Spread the love. This is a cashmere. Oh. Yeah, flavor. It's really how they made that a flavor, I don't know. I mean, it's supposed to be like a, a fabric, you know, like a, a texture, but uh, Is it a what, like what I'm actually not very familiar with hookah. What is the what is like what it's is basically it mean? just tobacco soaked in molasses okay. and some kind of flavor scented thing. It's not healthier. It's just the oldest mechanical way that people have been really? smoking for thousands of years. Yeah, it's like one no of kidding. the oldest smoking apparatus things from the Middle East. That no kidding. Yeah, huh. basically, coals sit at the top, heat up the wet tobacco underneath. The smoke filters through the water comes out your hose and my hose is janky with a bunch of tape on it because <laughs> there's little holes it just looks loved you know yeah it's it's well used it's yeah. it's well practiced right right hookah yeah. let me share it with you and while you're smoking that i'll go ahead and read your bio so everyone can get to know you a little bit better what you're about um Keep opening up the Apple receipt uh, email on my <laughs> my phone. No, no, not Apple uh, receipt. Uh, ben Carpenter is uh, groundwork Northeast Revitalization Group's climate safe neighborhoods outreach coordinator. That's me. That's a mouthful, but I got through it. Yep. <laughs> groundwork is the name of the organization based in KCK. They're the Northeast Revitalization Group. And in his role, Ben explores, communicates the relationships between the climate crisis and institutionalized racism, builds the capacity of residents to self-advocate for equitable distribution of resources, and helps to organize residents to intervene in policy and planning systems. That's the idea. Hey, welcome, Ben. should also clarify that any views and opinions expressed here by me are my... <laughs> are not those of Groundworks. Are not those of Groundworks. Groundwork also is not a sponsor of the Pray for Micah podcast. They <laughs> are definitely not a sponsor. No one's a sponsor of this podcast. Micah's a sponsor of Pray for Micah. Right. This is ground up. Hey, ground up. but your prayers are sponsor are sponsoring. They're helping out this, you know. So everyone who prays for me, pray pray for groundwork. Pray for Ben. <laughs> pray we for need Micah. It. We need all of it. Oh man. So what got you passionate about like climate crisis? And we were kind of sussing out a little bit ago just like you have to take on new leadership roles mm -hmm. being an advocate in the community and so what does that look like yeah are we talking like all the way back my let's start from the very beginning the very beginning it was a windy <laughs> blustery february evening <laughs> Lori carpenter went into labor oh my gosh um oh Lori. yeah no you know i think like so my my journey into climate issues 
is, um, I was going to say it's a little indirect. I mean, it feels like it's just to the right of the bullseye that I was shooting for. And then it ended up being its own like kind of target. If that makes sense. It's, I actually got into conservation issues when I was, um, a teenager in Fairport, New York. Um, I come from a family of hunters and fishermen and we loved camping and all that stuff. And so being not outdoors, carpenters, not, <laughs> not right. Correct. That was way, way back. Yes. That was, yeah, they were the carpenters way back. Yes. Yeah. I've been a carpenter my whole life. Um, uh, but I've always found a lot of, um, grounding in the outdoors in particular. Um, and so it was, I think my, my, my first introduction to anything political was through conservation. I grew up pretty in a house that was like pretty apolitical, leaning conservative. Um, and the outdoors was sort of the, it was like, it was a, a safe haven. It was a sanctuary. It was, like I said, it was, it was grounding both in terms of my mental health and my spiritual health at the time um, and still today. Um, and so naturally, you know, what that ends up leading into during college was um, becoming involved with, um, environmentalism right and that's not necessarily a, a leap that everybody makes i don't want to like that's not like an a, a usual kind of jump um there's actually a ton of folks outdoors people uh, recreationists or conservationists uh, hunters fishermen sportsmen um who want nothing to do with environmentalism um i think there's always been kind of underlying kind of these like underlying everything that i've i've kind of move forward in life with um, is this idea that um, the world is, has a great capacity for beauty, um, but there are things and systems that really um, take from that beauty and, and cultivate a lot of cruelty and, and destruction. And so for me, the way that that melded with my love of the outdoors is that like, I need to become politically active in protection of these places. Mm. Um, from there, I think there's always been an understanding that humans are very much like integrally woven into the ecosystems, right? Um, and that, you know, as much as we shape the ecosystems, they shape us. And so for sure. me, it's always been very intuitive that um, like social issues um, and environmental issues uh, are one and the same, but they're not really treated one and the same, uh, by like mainstream American environmentalism. Um, a lot of mainstream environmental groups have long racist histories, um, mm. like very openly anti-immigrant histories up, up until like fairly recent times. Um, but I think the climate movement is different because it's sort of, um, it was, in many ways, like the the nexus of, of social issues and, and environmental issues that I um, wanted to live in, mm. uh, in terms of my work, in terms of my thinking. Um, and so I started off wanting just to spend more time outdoors and that like was sort of the, the North Star for a lot of my life, um, but that inevitably, just because of my, my moral bindings um, kind of dragged me into to climate change as like this you know, it's the this sort of looming, this looming disaster that's going to be devastating for, for lots of people around the world. And we all, you know, we're all very familiar, I'm sure, with the 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 doom and gloom narrative, so we don't have to go too much into it. But I think that's probably where I arrived at climate Unless change. you're a flat earther, then you have other problems you're worried about. Yeah. <laughs> well, then it's like, we can't even, we can't even decide what environment we live in, much right. less. 
yeah. <laughs> trying to solve the environmental issues. Yeah, you got bigger issues. If that's a flat earther. <laughs> yeah. Actually, also, yeah, that's. I've, I've talked to a few flat earthers about. It. It's really interesting. Um, I have so I also teach geography at Metropolitan Community College, and okay, um, I've definitely had a few flat earthers. I, I teach geography, like really the globe, world yeah. geography, and but you've had some flat earther students and flat earther students because you have to take my class. It's like a, it's like a requisite credit, and so. Um, our future environmentalists, flat earthers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, well, they have a really interesting perspective on, you know, what I've found is that like flat earth and flat earthers, like really just want community. They want something to like, you know, latch onto and, and, um, and to be taken seriously. Right. They want this insider knowledge sure. that other people either are too dumb. They think they're too dumb to, to believe. Um, and they just want their ideas kind of at least validated, taken seriously. And then like, walked back i guess this was generally how i and and to be clear these are students right these are 18 year olds who i'm talking to sure so they're very much they're still waiting they're still waiting there's like very malleable Um, right so no we don't have any firm flat earthers but people who are definitely like people watch too much youtube people watch way too much youtube (laughs) yeah don't watch youtube just kidding yeah don't watch the show yeah it's it's no factual things are on the show (laughs) (laughs) although i can say that the earth is round there I've stated a fact today. Yeah, that there is, you go. That is truth. Guaranteed. <laughs> you won't get flagged by the moderators. That's on that one. Uh, no, I mean, I always try to do somewhat due diligence. Now that I have these new cameras, I can actually stop to Google something. So now that's why I was determined. Like, I was using my phone to record oh, sure. past episodes. So now I'm like, well, this will be convenient. I don't have any, like, stage hand, somebody to help research. Like, is Man, that true? Is that a fact? You know? That's, yeah. So now I can actually research. I won't research flat earth right now with, you know, with our conversation. Yeah. I mean, we can get in. That's, that's for after the show. <laughs> I have something to blow your mind, man. That's okay. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Rock my world, you know? <laughs> no, I, I hear you though. It's like QAnon, all these kind of conspiracy hubs. It's, it, it's uh, really just an outlet for these people to find a network of people that can, to like jive on something. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, I never like to treat someone like they're stupid. Right. You know, no, none of us. That's never our goal to try and like have conversations. But we're already trying to like argue about legitimate science. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like uh, you know, whatever, whatever it was like three years ago when we had the solar eclipse, right? Yeah. Were you here in Kansas City? No, we were that? in Syracuse. Okay, so uh, I had a friend from Scotland flying. I met him on a speech and debate trip when I was in college. And uh, we've stayed in touch just online. And he works for an observatory there in Scotland. And so he messaged me. He was like, hey, I'm going to make a visit to Kansas City because it's going to pass over your area. Is it cool if I come watch the solar eclipse and stay with you guys? And it's like, hell yeah, man. Come on down, you know. So he flew over, um, stayed with me for a couple days in my apartment. And the day of, like, I drove out to meet my sister, and we end up in, like, this random park, because we just, like, do... but we're looking at our GPS, and we're, like, following these coordinates to get to this phenomenon, mm-hmm. and and we see it. We witness it. It's this whole weird, ethereal, like, pale, like, oh, so cool. you know, like, tra- like, it's hard to describe. It's not a sunset. It's not sunrise. Right. It's, it's this other. It's this sure. weird, pale, luminescent lighting around the whole world right and we're all just looking at each other just like freaking out jumping around dancing you know and all this crazy stuff and uh and yeah that was like the same time yeah trump looked up and blinded yeah. himself that's you know? actually <laughs> immediately what came to mind i'm like that's 
you have to look at it right. through <laughs> solar oh, glasses. Man. You can't yeah. do that. I like that that's the image that everyone takes away from that. Like when I think, when you said the eclipse, I'm like, man, like, where was I when that happened? And all, <laughs> the only image that came to mind was Trump looking directly at the sun. And um, yeah, no, it's... Because that's, yeah, media images that still stick out to yeah. me. But uh, all that to say, it was just like, a lot of science went behind <laughs> bringing able to bring down like the, you know, where it's going to happen, where you can oh, yeah. view it. And like people have been studying, this, I mean, for eons, you know, movement it's, of the stars. It's not new. It's That's not new. Very and yet reliable. When it comes to the science of climate change mm-hmm. or for environment issues. Sure. We can't agree about our harm to the planet. And so it's just kind of one of those things where like I get it. Like there's research that is backed by you always have to follow the money and sure, who right. is you know because yeah, there's, there's like that. Gonna, yeah that's kind of like i get like we have skepticism and stuff like that because yeah at one point there were cigarette companies right. <laughs> who were doing the research behind sure. cancer and stuff mm-hmm. and lungs as i spoke a hookah but uh, there's a lot of uh yeah corresponding like evidence to say that this is a real issue oh yeah i mean it's i think it's like 97 percent of the world's scientists are on board with like anthropogenic climate change climate change by humans um and i will say like i think i mean something i think that covid's like really brought to the forefront is this idea that because i'm looking at vaccine skepticism especially in, in certain marginalized communities um it really emphasized and underlined those histories of like where science actually like really fucked up. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. can I swear on this? Oh, yeah. for sure. Okay. Yeah. Like science and the federal government in particular, like has, has caused like a lot of harm and violence. Um, and so, you know, one of my, something I studied in, in grad school was like the history of science um, and the way that science can be accurate, but the curation of facts is, is, you know, produced in order to support a certain um, like status quo, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so if that status quo is like inherently racist or if that status quo is um, capitalistic, like, or if it takes, if, if it takes place within the context of a, like a military industrial complex, the science, um, I get it, right? Like it's the science, the curation of facts have been weaponized and will be weaponized again in, in mm-hmm. certain ways, right? So I, I definitely, you know, kind of the same thing with the, the flat earthers where you're just like, we're not going to talk in a serious way about how the flat earth theory is correct. We're not, we're not going to talk about it at all. I'm just going to push past that and then, mm-hmm. you know, um, present, you know, facts and, and have like a, a reasoned conversation and kind of validate your emotions around it. Um, while gently guiding the conversation in this other direction. Um, yeah, I mean, I think something, so w- with the workshops that I do, sorry, I got to clear my throat. <coughs> do it um i take like a pre-survey so i guess i should probably give a little bit of we don't have to go into the workshops right now but i think it's relevant um i do climate safe kck workshops which focus on um bringing participants into the climate conversation who have been historically just left out entirely um of the climate conversation uh in kansas city area especially and we're talking about usually um, black and brown communities, uh, low-income communities, um, folks who live in like formerly redlined neighborhoods, um, sure. and you know, uh, they're 
we, we select for folks, uh, you know, we, we are able to provide stipends and childcare to, to remove those barriers to participation. Um, but what, you know, what ends up happening is you, because the conversation has been so focused on um, kind of this white, usually upper middle class kind of perspective and experience, um, a lot of the participants in the workshops actually have very little or any exposure to climate um, issues or environmental issues or ecology um, prior to the workshop. And so the pre-surveys that I do, um, the participants are like all over the board about whether or not it's even happening. They're, they're in the room. They're clearly interested in the subject. Right. Um, but yeah, it's <clears throat> they, um, whether or not it's happening at all, is it caused by God? Is it, you know, caused by 5G? And so it's, it's more just like this um, kind of like, uh, like humble listening, like, a, like myself knowing what I know and like kind of my expertise, um, like listening in a really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not empathetic. Um, I don't know. Listening in a, in a really understanding way that sure. a lot of this like knowledge gap is, is a knowledge gap that's, that's based in sort of systemic issues um, of, of marginalization. Um, and that's what I think. So I, I think in many ways it applies to other things we talked about. What, COVID, QAnon, um, whatever else. So I don't know where I was going with that. But. Well, I think, yeah, just that idea of that science has, like you said, historically, like we, you know, the liberal, we always want to, especially you're saying during the age of COVID, it's like we should just trust the science. And we automatically just want to jump into this public health crisis with like everybody just trust what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then historically, yeah, like <clears throat> testing medications on black and brown communities, right. you know, sterilizing native communities with these like surgery. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's all like crazy. Yeah, shit. You can go look up a uh, oh dear listener, but right. Then we just automatically want people. To, we want we expect to like just have automatic trust right. when right. we come in with our PowerPoint. <laughs> yep. We're teaching them, and so I get like the whole like yeah, what is, you tell me it's not five G yeah. oh, <laughs> that's yeah. giving us cancer right. or you know some kind of global conspiracy and yeah you in this day and age of vast amounts of information being shared it's hard to sift out sometimes like what is the truth um but i think like you're saying like it takes time it takes mm-hmm. like and it's compassion that's what I, it <clears> takes <throat> compassionate listening it takes time yes. and like sort of moving at the speed of trust right you know? right um yeah for sure sorry to interrupt no that's I'm glad you found the word, you know, <laughs> so right, right. it never comes to me. <laughs> I just, I just have to move on. And then an hour later, like that, that was the word I was thinking. <laughs> you know, some other thought that was kind of come up in relation to this conversation of just like my upbringing. If you want to puff on that for a minute, um, you know, growing up in the church, um, it was just an interesting time to look back and to think about, what the stance was of the church that I grew up in or the culture I was a part of when it came to climate change. Um, or, you know, back then it was global warming, you know, it's just like, you know, terminologies that people, yeah, depending on where you are, it's right. different now, but, um, the one thing I do remember them teaching, like in the book of Genesis is that, um, that God essentially called Adam and Eve to be stewards of the earth. Mm -hmm. And a steward is somebody who like, Hey, the quote unquote 
you know, master of the world or the mm. owner of it is not here. And so you steward their, their, th- their, this possession, this, yep. their, their stuff. You keep their stuff safe until they come back. And that was always like the message about that's basically as far as it went when it went to the environment, like we're here in our short time here, um, to win souls, to get them to heaven, you know? So on the one hand, it's kind of also like, well, fuck the earth. Cause it's all going to go up in a blaze of glory eventually. Right. And we're all just trying to get to heaven anyways. Mm-hmm. But I guess while we're here, we might as well be good stewards of it and try to like, you know, have a good yard. Mow, yeah. you know. <laughs> it's like, oh, actually the grass and everything we have in our yard is detrimental to the environment. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I think there's actually, it's interesting that you bring that up. So, um, I mean, like evangelicals have actually been really, they have a really um, effective and I think like really uh, beautiful narrative and obviously it's not broadly speaking it's it's like not all evangelicals have this perspective you'd be able to speak better on that issue but the idea of the creation care um and that you know if we're created in god's image and we should be uh, behave as god basically Mm -hmm. you know god likes likes the plants and the birds and xyz and, and so we should also behave as if you know if he if he likes them then we should take care of them like you said um, and that, that is actually, oh, when, I guess when I was back in undergrad, I would, I wrote a paper that was making the argument that Aldo Leopold made, who's, if you're not familiar with him, he's like the father of, uh, modern conservation. And I think he coined the word ecology. Um, but he was advocating for, um, instead of like this technical hyper scientific approach to, um, advocacy for the living world, uh, that we required a moral sort of. Um, approach to it and moral messaging and a moral framing for the way that we talked about it and, and, and talked to other people about it. Um, and so he comes up with uh, what's called the land ethic. Um, and it's not, it's not really explicitly rooted in, in sort of, you know, any sort of, you know, theology or anything. Um, but he was a big fan of the idea of like helping, you know, promoting this idea of creation care and as, as like a, the moral sort of, if you have the two prongs of environmental communication, you have the you know, the, uh, the logos and the pathos. Um, he wants that. Well, I guess I don't know what it would be. Ethos, whatever. Sure. I'm getting over you. out of my depth with that <laughs> one, but he wants the, you know, in tandem with the scientific technical explanation and, and argument for things, he wants the, the moral argument mm-hmm. as well. Um, and the evangelicals have actually done a really good job of, of making that argument. And again, it's not all evangelicals. Uh, you could obviously speak better to that, uh, but, but yeah. 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 I, I, never found like really compelling leadership in my past church experiences that was like for the environment. Like I said, sure. it was more of like the the philosophical idea of it was, well, you know, we should take care of the planet. If, if then again, this is just my experience, but <clears throat> if anything, there started to take a turn somewhere there in the like late nineties, you know, early two thousands where the church was starting to like kind of just, Probably before that, but again, I was only born in 89, so somewhere in that 10, 11-year-old range, you know, yeah. I was starting to see, like, this kind of, like, shift towards, again, like, any climate change or science around it was starting to become just leftist rhetoric. Yeah, that's what... Yeah. It was becoming, like, well, yeah, we should take care of the earth because God created it. Mm-hmm. And like you were saying, that to to me, as a person who can stand outside the Bible now and look on it and see, like... 
this refreshing perspective of it. Like, yeah, this was written during a time when all of the quote unquote world forming stories, mm. narratives of that, like that area were all birthed out of conflict. They were like gods who clashed and their sword sparks made the stars. Sure, right. And, and the, the corpse here, is giant. Yeah. Right? Like, the earth, yeah. yeah, yeah. Something along those lines. I, I couldn't name any specific like ethnicity or group, but from what I've read, like <clears throat> there was more of these conflict origin stories of the universe um, with the powers that be. And here comes this like little tribe of, you know, of, you know, Jews who were Hebrews, I guess at that time, you know, who were um, basically kind of presenting a new narrative of the time. Like, Hey, this is a world who's actually been spoken and created. Like it was birthed out of like, oh, that's really interesting. this beauty and majesty for it. And so, all that to say, though, then, okay, well, screw recycling, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. we forget. And I mean, to the end of the day, like, I mean, I've heard people say even scientists, you know, people who are on the left, liberal leaning side of it, issues that recycling is just killing the earth slower. I've heard someone say, <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not an issue or uh, <clears throat> a solution. Um, but it's got to be systemic, I guess, is the whole point. It's like it's yeah, yeah. They've done a good job of trying to make it like. You're, it's up to the personal responsibility to save the planet. And that's, and so, I mean, we're talking about the politica, politicization, basically, of, of conservation and of environmental issues. Yes. That's born out of the 70s. And it's like, it, um, oh my gosh, I can't think of it right now. Um, America the Beautiful um, is, or Beautiful America, I can't remember what it was. Anyways, it's basically this, like, giant uh, plastics um association of, of plastic producers who in the 70s 60s and 70s realized that there's and in, in, in the midst of this burgeoning interest um in uh preserving ecosystems i mean you had nixon was the one who formed the epa right a lot mm -hmm. of our major the uh, clean air act clean water act i'm, I'm fact checked on me on this later but i'm pretty sure that those were like those were republican things right um and so you have the, the plastics industry and the oil industry and all these other guys um, realize that there's a real issue coming down the road where you're going to have a lot of government regulation that's going to be really um, costly. And so there was like, I mean, it's, it's a coordinated campaign throughout the 70s and 80s. And, and like, then it just kind of becomes its own self-sustaining thing throughout the 90s and 2000s where the burden comes off of the polluters um, to clean up their acts and it goes on to the individual, like as you were saying. Right. And I think that's the same way <clears throat> that you have um, like environmentalism and environmental rhetoric uh, kind of consigned to the left um, because it, you know, the, the, the material, the, 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 the material, means of existence, whatever, um, the things that we need to survive and the things that, that capitalism sells to us, um, like will not, there's no way that you can just not have sacrifice zones. You need to extract resources to produce stuff. Right. Right. Um, and, and because economies are politicized, um, then like, you know, movements and, and campaigns and people and policies that are, um, advocating against that extraction become politicized. Um, and I mean, like, I know I'm, I feel like I'm talking up the right here a lot, but the right <laughs> has done quite a bit for, I mean, conservation, like Missouri has one of the best funded conservation programs in the country. Um, mm. and it's because sportsmen, oh yeah, sportsmen, I mean, basically 
the vast majority of funding for environmental programs in the U.S., at least through government, comes from um, taxes on like hunting and fishing and stuff like that. Right. Um, and, and land conservation. Uh, so that that kind of that kind of deal. So what? So you mean taxes work? <laughs> yeah, they work so very well. So you mean well. taxing taxes work <laughs> and um, sportsmen who tend to be conservative, at least in my experience, are like all about paying those taxes because they are like, it's so central. And like myself, like that's how, I mean, that was, again, it's such a grounding thing to everything from like spirituality to uh, senses of masculinity. Um, mm. People are willing to pay those taxes. And, and, and it's largely like, like the conservatives have done a lot for, for the environment for sure. Um, and so it is unfortunate that's become like, at least in the public arena, this like the left, the left right. is like you know the they care more the tree hugging hippies the trees than babies right right, right. yeah they want to abort you know, when in reality I'm I, you could probably <laughs> argue that like conservationists and, and conservatives have probably saved more trees than than liberals ever have so you hear that Republicans who are listening to, you probably saved a tree in your life oh I'm sure <laughs> I'm positive tree huggers man that's no that's that's cool and that's like I think I think it's a beautiful example like what you're trying to bring up is like. Yeah, the intention might be different behind it, mm-hmm. but the outcome, at least, we can all share, like, what we're trying to aim for. And, like, yeah. at the end of the day, like, no one wants to, like, be in a Mad Max, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. burning desert. Yeah. Like, no one wants that. But we also really like the shit out of our Amazon packages and things, yeah. you know. Again, I'm guilty of it, you know. Mm-hmm. And so yep. the commodification, like you're saying, of of resources becomes... Um, untenable mm-hmm. over the long run. Yeah. And so yeah, like I still recycle. So I forgive my people. Don't don't stop recycling just because I make a joke. No, about you should how. definitely recycle. And like things like glass and clean cardboard and aluminum, you can recycle indefinitely. And they're like right. they're really great. Well, maybe not cardboard. I'm talking a lot, not my ass this whole time. So <laughs> people can go fact check me on a lot of this stuff. Um, plastics really the only one that you really are like one. We should just stop producing plastics. Right. Um, I did see something recently. I don't know if it was Harvard or somebody's developed an enzyme that has promised. It's it's apparently it eats plastic. Yeah, there's it'll probably of- destroy the world. You know, I'm sure. For the minute they test, it'll become some kind of apocalyptic. Um, yeah. You know, mad scientist. Well, there's all sorts of these. Like, I mean, there's. I think they have, there's like a mushroom. There's a fungus that eats um, plastic. There's like a bacteria that eats plastic and oil and. Um, but I think that's all, like, again, it's more just like the... It's reactive. It's reactive. It's, it's you're trying to fix the problem after you've already created the problem versus... Right. It's like, move up basically, your tub, your bathtub's overflowing, and instead of just turning off the faucet, you you begin mopping the floor, right, right. while it's actively overflowing. Mm. Um, and so, you know, if you're really interested in in keeping your floor dry, you should just turn off the faucet, man. Stop producing plastic. It's bad. Yeah. Here, here. So, that's a little bit about kind of your passion, what you're doing for work, and doing these community workshops and teaching in school, college. I want to go back to what you were bringing up about just the idea of, because you were saying that you, you know, kind of study this and I, I told kind of primed you and said, I kind of wanted to hear more about this paper you wrote in college about just explore this idea of like, I mean, you and I are definitely in this place where we're trying to like um, detach our like, maybe what would have been presented as toxic masculinity with enjoying (laughs) nature Mm -hmm. or just the male need to just be conquer something, uh, you know, be out and, and, uh, so 
can you tell me more about the research and the paper you did? And we don't have to talk about it a long time, but I just thought it was an interesting topic you chose. Yeah, yeah. So this was um, my graduate research, which was looking at, so went to SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry up in Syracuse, New York. Um, and I have no like biophysical background. Um, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a chemist. Um, I'm a, a social scientist. And so um, I looked less at sort of the, the hard data um, and, and was doing more qualitative research. Um, and the sort of topic that I picked up, I guess I should back up a little bit. So I got into this. One of the questions, I heard one somewhere that you should never go to grad school unless you have a very specific question that you want to answer and if they're going to pay for it, um, which they did both. And I, I had a question. Um, and it had come after I was organizing in Kansas City around, again, it was like 2016, you had the People's Climate March, um, where we were working with a couple local climate groups. We were working with Sierra Club and uh, some sort of, you know, a few of the council people. Um, and it was like a, a really stark example to me of how siloed environmentalism and, and the climate movement um, kind of kept itself from uh, social issues or concerns about um, you know racism or low poverty uh, inequality etc um, and so the, the big thing was that like I mean the, the planning committee was all white um, there were a lot of men on it mostly men um, and you know there was at the time because again it was trump coming in so there's you know i think uh intersectionality was kind of having a buzzword moment where people were like we need to make this intersectionality or we need to make this intersectional um how do we get more diverse you know people here more diverse perspectives represented and um like they approached it with the the sort of standard toolbox that mainstream environmentalism has used uh throughout the 20th century which is basically saying like you know we'll leave the door open and everyone's welcome but we're not going to go take any extra steps or do any extra work to look at how our space is uh inaccessible in many ways to uh people of color lower right. income folks um and so it was just it was wild i mean like the like the haskell you know haskell uh, the Haskell School over in Lawrence. It's like the the Native American College. Okay. Um, they have a dance, you know, a dance troupe team, um, and they were invited not as like participants, but as like the entertainment um, at first, which oh. we shut right down. Wow. Um, there was like a couple of us on the board, which were like you can't do that. Like that's um, that is wildly offensive. And um, so anyways, tokenism, tokenism, tokenism. And also it's like not entertainment. It's like a deeply spiritual and like right. really like, um, you know, affirming art form. Um, so anyways, uh, after this whole event and there was like other examples of why it was just trash. Um, I was like, what is the deal? Why is it that environmentalism keeps itself so siloed? What's the history that's kept it so siloed? Um, and what are like sort of the underpinnings of the way that these groups are structured that keeps it, keeps them very insular. Um, and so what that kind of brought me to in grad school is looking at specifically the role that wilderness plays um, in uh, informing the environmental movement. And it's the idea that like the environmental movement as we understand it um, comes out of this sort of 
uh, like wilderness preservation and conservation movement of the early 20th century, late 19th century. Um, and it's all based on this idea that the, you know, there's chunks of the earth that are wild. They're untrammeled by humans. They've, they're just pristine. Um, but it ends up being like a really wildly colonial idea, right? And, and oftentimes like a white supremacist idea, which is the idea that, you know, when Europeans came to North America, there were millions of people who lived here, right? Who right. actively, and for eons, had, had actively managed the ecosystems here. Um, but that it was all declared pristine. And, and in order to be remain pristine, we needed to remove the, the natives from like their ancestral lands um, in order to like create wilderness. Wilderness had to be created, right? As an idea, as a, as a construct. Mm. Um, there's truthfully like very, very, very little space on earth that has not been altered by humans like for, for millennia. Right. Um, I mean the redwood forests, right? These are, <clears throat> these are ecosystems that are like very um, deliberately cultivated uh, by uh, generations and generations of natives who, you know, uh, who farmed it, who, who selected for certain plant species and animal species. So the point is that wilderness is basically this colonial construct that allows, um, you know, lots of, lots of different things. So, but we're going to the research part now. So the facet of the wilderness and we, it's called the received wilderness idea, which is that wilderness is pristine. It's defined as like being without humans. You go to wilderness. Um, it's like true nature. Um, mm. and it's by itself, like a moral good that informs a lot of policy. It informs a lot of activism uh, again through the 20th century and you get groups like the Sierra club, the nature conservancy, um, and all these other groups. Um, and so the, the what ha ends up happening is that you have environmental groups and campaigns throughout the 20th century that build their entire programming around, you know, this idea that nature is something that um, has fallen from a state of like perfection and grace um, and that like needs to be returned to that state of perfection and grace, ideally, or, um, you know, at least pockets of it have to be, which is defined again that, that grace and that perfection is defined by the absence of, of humanity um so anyways um that ends up informing a lot of the way that these groups interact with social issues um but that's changing right and and so um i looked at in my paper it was called um gendered wilderness um and it was looking at the various wilderness experiences um, um across genders um if wilderness was formed as a like uh, a bastion for white masculinity, it was a place where, um, especially you know, as places were industrializing, um, usually it was rich men um, who were uh, felt like they were being feminized by an urban society could escape into, and it's kind of this last bastion of their um, like homosocial control. Like it was, it was. Mm this last place where they could be men, right? Without, right. The, without the nagging wife and the children and mm. the, the black people and the, the Italian immigrants and all these people coming in. And so, um, Let that me just go out here and be a man in the, the woods. Yes. Right. The Thoreau's, <laughs> the John Muir's. Um, and so, um, even if, you know, a lot of the discourse around what environmentalism 
is and looks like um, has changed. Well, let me take a beat here. Think about how I'm going to phrase this. So, right. So, it is changing, but it's changing because we are examining those histories and the way that mm. wilderness, um, masculinized wilderness, um, informs environmental programming. Um, it still remains this huge barrier to participation right. for folks who are not, um, you know, traditionally masculine. They're not traditionally, you know, you know, white or, or high income. Brief intermission. Well, welcome back, everybody. You didn't know. To you, this has only been a split second. To us, this has been a 20-minute uh, troubleshooting time. So, silly me, I uh, decided to test out these cameras on Ben. He knew that these were my like, first time doing it. And I decided, yeah, let's do high-quality recording. Didn't realize it was going to equate to 168 gigabytes of video <laughs> space for two videos over the course of an hour so all my stuff shut down and now we're recording the rest of this episode uh totally audio so youtube people sorry you get an hour of our lovely faces this sexy man's face but now you'll just have to see our pictures on <laughs> or the picture the equally sexy pictures and for those who are listening to us you just get to hear our regular sexy voices right <laughs> Without the, without the sexy images. <laughs> so this is a good plug. If this is a time, you all should go like and subscribe to my YouTube channel so you can see half of the videos <laughs> that I never... It's really great. It's <laughs> honestly stellar. <laughs> it's probably why it overloaded. It was just... It's just like, I can hot. only take so much male beauty in one room. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, but, yeah, and if you're listening to this on your regular streaming um, podcast, you know, Spotify, Apple, please leave a review and hit that bell so you get notifications when new episodes come out. And uh, I'll get my life together, but until then, please pray for me. Please pray for this equipment. Pray for this podcast. Yeah. It's... Uh, the learning curve is real. It's very curvy, like me. <laughs> <laughs> Curves not bad, not bad, you know. Well, Ben, uh, we just decided we were going to kind of move on from our environmental conversation as much as it is really kind of yeah, really eye opening and profound. I want to delve more into you, into this last part of our segment. Um, so, tell me how you and Annie met. Uh, if you don't mind, and let's hear more about the intentional community that you were a part of for a while. Yeah, yeah. So this is a story that we had to stop telling because it's, you know. But we so we met in because I think pe people generally find it boring. Is, so I'm going <laughs> to bore all of your listeners with it. So we we met. We were both um, doing a year in California with uh, AmeriCorps National Civilian Community Corps which is a residential um, travel program for, for young people, 18 to 24. Um, we were based out of Sacramento. I was building trails. She was planting trees um, and living in uh, a short stint in Barrow, Alaska. And we, there was like 300, of us, 300 of us on campus, and there was one bar, um, a clamper bar. It was, it was a clamper. It's like the a biker fraternity kind of thing. And we met 
Um, bonded over the fact that mm, we had just given up deodorant and <laughs> living in the woods and, and nobody really cared. Um, and she, yeah, basically we, we hung out for, we actually met towards the end or we started hanging out at the end of our, our term. Um, so we like really were only like physically together for like a couple weeks before, um, the program ended and I went back to New York. Um, we kept in touch and in New York, uh, not a lot happening there as far as, you know, work and my friends had moved away. Um, and so I was like, well, why not move to where Annie is? Cause she was pretty cool. And so, um, actually it was, we were like madly in love. Right. And that Aww. was the first couple of weeks. And so, well, no, and like still are, but, um, I, we would call like every night and I was like living at my dad's. And there was like a little like kind of bodega corner store down the road from where we lived. And so every night I would like go get a, like a 40 and then bring it back and just drink it in his front front yard. And I remember just like kind of talking to her drunkenly on the phone one night and deciding that Rochester is not where I needed to be right then. And so I promised her I would be in Kansas City in 30 days. And like so the next day I woke up and like, damn it. All right. So I made a commitment last night. Um, it was just like, it was a drunken commitment. I didn't need to follow through on it, <laughs> but I immediately, um, applied for another AmeriCorps year with Harvesters, the food bank here, Kansas city. And I'd been working at a pool supply store for like $7 an hour and like not a lot of hours a week. So I had like $200. I spent a hundred on that hundred of that on a Greyhound bus ticket and, um, took the bus it was like a 32 hour bus ride because it kept breaking down and she actually had to come pick me up in columbia missouri where we have an, another friend who lives there um but she had told me that it was okay to you know f- stay at her parents place for a couple weeks while i get things in order with harvesters and um i didn't realize that her family had just moved to kansas city from manhattan kansas and so we're in this sort of like transitional apartment kind of thing and so it was m- me some like stinky dude from New York, um, who they'd never met, um, staying on their couch with like her, her adult brother, and then, uh, the, the parents. So I slept on the, the patio, um, you know, cause like, nobody knew me. We, Annie and I had only known each other for like a month and a half. So, um, <laughs> eventually I was commuting on the bus here to Harvester's. Um, I was commuting from their apartment to Harvester's each day, like three hours, one direction. So I was like, that's not sustainable. And so I ended up couch surfing with a, a coworker and, um, yeah, that coworker happened to be the roommate of her, the one person that she knew in Kansas city, uh, who was like her ex-boyfriend. So I lived with her ex-boyfriend for three weeks and then I ended up getting a house with, uh, another coworker. But anyway, so. That was that. We lived in Kansas City for two years and then decided to go to grad school in, in Syracuse, New York. And so what we ended up finding was we wanted we knew that we wanted to live in a, an intentional community. Annie had lived in a co-op before. She loved it. I had lived on like kind of a co-op-y organic farm before, loved it, and also knew that it was a very affordable way to live. And we didn't have a ton of money because we'd been working as AmeriCorps volunteer service members um, for a year and then like low wage nonprofit workers for another year. So we found a place called bread and roses, <clears throat> which is the sort of self-described, um, communo anarchist, 
like justice space. And it was very cool, honestly. Um, the, 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 at least the, the space was, right? Um, sort of completely or nominally non-hierarchical sort of living arrangement where we shared groceries and we shared um, duties, you know, kind of the basic co-op model. Uh, there's these two beautiful, like, restored Victorian giant homes um, kind of back to back. And so the, the entire, like, space between them was taken up by, like, this beautiful forest and, like, a huge garden where we got a ton of food from. And it was really cool. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, bread and roses. And, and a lot of good people live there. There's probably 14 people who live there at any given time. Um, and something that, that stood out to us, you know, compared to our past experiences with kind of cooperative living arrangements was that this wasn't like for college kids necessarily. It was, it was like a, it was a cooperative made up of like adults, like professionals. Like we had a lawyer who lived there. We had like a software engineer. We had a uh, professor at Syracuse university. Um, and like people had children were raising kids here. Um, it was, it was like a very responsible, <laughs> very like <laughs> put together place for sure. It was, it was pretty, pretty interesting. We didn't end up leaving. You know, but that's yeah. where I'll end that and tantalize for the other questions that come in. <laughs> that's funny what you're describing, you know, 14 people, two Victorian houses, like, so basically the future of investment for millennials when it comes to property is just like, yeah. even if they don't call it a co-op or an intentional community, it's just, okay, the way the housing market is. Yeah. Everyone's just like, literally, I just had a friend the other day, like proposed to me. He was like, um, what do you think about going out of a house with me and my, uh, my, my wife, my partner, and we can, uh, <laughs> find somewhere that has a, you know, basically a whole floor to itself you right. know, or something. And we can you and your brother can move in i was like oh sounds about right like i mean yeah they call it like co-housing or something like that which is like you just have roommates right yeah and the i think shawnee actually just um like banned that really you can't like you can't have like more than three unrelated adults living together in shawnee kansas wow yeah sounds like something they would do yeah 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 Probably that whole county. They're like, well, we already tried to get rid of mixed income housing. Right. And so let's really try to stop this by stifling. Yeah, it just seems co-owning. like such a weird, weird hill to die on. But I mean, I guess I guess you have a bunch of these. You don't want too many millennials moving in, I guess. Yeah. Just killing your Applebee's, killing your. They're so mad at us that we don't buy more shit, buy houses and stuff. And then they make laws like that. That was so stupid. Right. They're just. Okay, you can't afford a house on your own. All these uh, boomers are buying up the houses and have more leverage, capital to leverage, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah. No, I, I think tying into the conversation we had before, like co-housing is, in like cooperative housing, I do believe like really represent like viable, and Casey Tenants I think is working on something like this, but it, it represents a really viable answer to like a lot of, um, a lot of social ills, you know, isolation, inequality, um, but but also like a lot of environmental like ills. Like mm -hmm. it's it's really like a really sustainable way to live. Concentrating resource uses, like right. It's cities are already pretty sustainable, considering you know obviously there's lots of problems, but um, the sort of concentration of resource use um, is really really efficient, and then like. The co-op is just that on a smaller scale, and so I'm I'm definitely a big fan of it, 
um, as a, as an idea and a, and a model. I haven't seen like, Hmm, I guess I've not seen one that also didn't come with like lots of other like complicated frills. Yeah. Drama. Drama. Baggage. Right. <laughs> so if we can figure that out. Yeah. Figure out how to get rid of human drama. Yeah. <laughs> Where the humans live. Truly. So. <laughs> Truly. Well, and I've shared with you, but for folks who are listening, maybe don't know, I lived part of, yeah, intentional community here in Kansas City, local community farm. I actually, like, completely forget that every time. You forget your life. It's like it was a really defining characteristic about you for the longest time, and then you moved out, and now I'm just like, oh, shoot. Oh, yeah, yeah Mike, could, Mike could live there. For, like, a long time. Yeah, for a couple of years. Um, yeah, Cherithbrook Catholic Worker, good folks, doing some really good work here in the Northeast. I don't live far from them. I'm just, like few minutes down the road um it was uh yeah really formative time it was tough because it was during the pandemic Mm. and so i don't feel like i got to really experience the community um i just experienced it different than like i think how i was planning to experience it which was like hey we're serving you know we're doing showers for folks in the community like we offered showers so people can get fresh clothes and just freshen up for their day and provide a breakfast. But then there's also chickens and bees and whole orchard. And so it's one of those things where <clears throat> it was, um, yeah, just uh, really good folks. But like all of our volunteers disappeared because half of our yeah. volunteers were like folks over the age of 55, 60s. Right. Most of them were retired. And so. They were an at-risk demographic for COVID, and it just put a lot of hurdles and barriers to our service to the community. But we still stayed open. We still, I mean, not during the shutdown, of course. At that point, we shut, you know, shut down for like two weeks or a month. I can't remember how right. long. Um, but I remember like one of the days we were open, and it's like right after the shutdown, some months afterwards, pretty fresh to the pandemic, and. I mean, it was like something out of the Great Depression, man. There was like over 100 people like in a line outside of our door because we could only let in like 10, 15 at a time. But then there was like all these new faces, families with kids Mm. coming to just get some food and supplies because, yeah, again, the stores and everything was ransacked. Um, And so, yeah, it was just a really hard time and then I just struggled a lot with my mental health and started counseling during that time and so and my family started they um, were selling the farm and so right yeah yeah I decided to move out of the community move back in with my folks to help them kind of wrap up and sell the farm for like six months Um, and then just kind of move back into the neighborhood but didn't move back in the community because yeah just Honestly, wanted to have my space back. Yeah. <laughs> I just had been living so totally. much with, you know, community, living with my parents. It was like, I just kind of need some space to kind of work on myself. Mm-hmm. So I started renting this place that I'm staying at. Um, it was a tough time, but it was really, um, yeah, it was just, I'll never forget this kind of era. You know, I mean, yeah. obviously with the pandemic, but just a lot of loss, a lot of like, love and goodbyes to the farm um but yeah therapists helped me a lot (laughs) processing and just uh accepting change right just we have to accept change and loss and and uh love 
love what's happening. Sorry, my pets are out there <laughs> destroying something. Oh, is that what that is? I thought that was the, the skeleton. Well, I closet. keep seeing my cat's paws like reach under the, the door. He's oh. trying to get your water bottle. <laughs> he's like, he's like you can't have it, Pumbaa. I paid $13 for this water bottle. <laughs> um, yeah, no, COVID. COVID, I think. Man, when you talk about it, like really derailing. I mean, obviously a lot. It's a, it's a awful thing. I think we just like officially crossed the million death threshold. Um, and it, it really makes you feel like you're not allowed to, to grieve the ways, like the small ways, the, not the small ways, that certainly the, the, the less traumatic ways in which it altered our lives. Yeah. But like that's, I hadn't thought about it. Like it really did like, I mean, I was gonna use the word ruin, but like it really just, it altered the way that you experienced living in community. Right. Um, yeah. Cause it was like kind of a community in isolation. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like the handful of us that live there would still have dinner and do stuff together. But anytime we had a COVID scare, it's like they would have to lock, you know, right. quarantine for a couple weeks. And, and a community in isolation, like kind of undermines the whole idea of, like, <laughs> of community. Of community. <laughs> We're all supposed what to be call- sharing each other's forks and spoon. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just pass around germs. Like. Yeah. Well, I was thinking even like the idea, I, th- I think like co-ops represent like this idea that humans need to be together, right? Like we're in, we're reliant on each other and that, yeah, like we as bread and roses live together in a house and we have like our own like weird little things, but we're also like part of that like frame of thinking, I think includes like being very interwoven with like everything outside the doors, right? The, all the community outside the doors, whether it's the, you know, the, the houseless neighbors you were talking about or mm-hmm. um, I mean anybody uh, just just generally folks out in the neighborhood um, and so I could see where it, it would be like a special kind of like isolation and insularity which I think co-ops also kind of lend themselves to mm-hmm. I could see where that would be become a problem in COVID yeah well, Ben, do, do, are we starting our own intentional community? Is that what's happening now? I think I think that we should. <laughs> you, Annie, me. <laughs> this is our As friends. it happens, I have a business proposition. Right? Oh, it just so happens. Oh. <laughs> How would you like to sell goat soap and hammocks? Oh, okay. <laughs> from a 10-acre plot and outside Chillicothe. <laughs> oh, Chillicothe. Yeah, interesting place. Uh, only if the goats are consenting to the, the, mm. the whole Can process. Can animal ever consent? We were, talking, we were debating whether or not we were going to talk about that's true <laughs> can an animal consent to giving you soap from their from their nether regions, <laughs> <laughs> i think the answer is a firm no but i don't know maybe there's maybe there's an ethicist out there that will dispute me on that until we uh plant chips in our head and plant the chips in animals brains and can telepathically communicate i guess or communicate we won't know fully but Oh, we I actually want to circle back. So you, the initial question had been, tell me about Annie. Tell me about your experience in the co-op. Yeah. And one of our biggest challenges is that like was, I mean, that, that co-op experience was actually like really hard on our relationship. Mm-hmm. And I realized that like I probably would never go back to living in community if I was in like a committed relationship. And um, yeah, like I think it's just because there's so much emotional 
you're, you, there's definitely like a different relationship than you would have with a normal roommate, right? Like it's you're, right. you're like very much tied up in the, the other person's like well-being, your roommate's well-being, your housemates, um, which meant that it felt like you had like twelve, you had like a partner, and then you had twelve other like people who came very proximate to being a partner, mm-hmm. um, and that was like really really hard. And yeah, it, I mean, because you, you feel like you owe. It, it, unless, unless you have like really good boundary management, which I don't have, um, yeah, that's I think that really affected us. And so we actually ended up moving out after a year, and then just getting our own place because we just needed to be a couple. Yeah, just focus on each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I could see totally how that would affect, or you know, especially a new kind of you know blossoming relationship like. Like I said, it's it's taxing. Like and like, I didn't. Like I said, I my community. They were, I had my own space, so they were living across the way. But just the constant, you know, folks need stuff, you know, and they're right. knocking on your door, and people in the community, and they want to talk, or mm-hmm. and so just the emotional and mental, like it taps you out after a while. Oh yeah. So it's hard to like, how can I offer something to my partner now? Again, I didn't have one. <laughs> It was me and Rayla, I guess. I my dog. Oh, yeah. I guess I came back. Rayla, Rayla, I just don't have the emotional capacity for. Rayla you. feels very discounted right now, <laughs> yeah. as if she wasn't suffering the entire time. Yeah, no, she was just like, "Are we gonna go out and eat these chickens yet? <laughs> like, can I just chase <laughs> these chickens? You've been you've been downstairs serving breakfast for too long. It's time to go chase some chickens." Um, but yeah, I could see how, yeah, it would be tough, especially with fourteen people. That's a whole mm. other ball game. Like two houses, fourteen people. Like, yeah. how do you manage your time and energy and and be able to invest in the person you love. Yeah. It was hard. We did not do it well. <laughs> that's that's all there is to say about that. <laughs> that's all there is. Just we did not do community well. <laughs> no. I mean, we, we made some, like, really good friends with whom we're, like, still very close to. And then, and then uh, but, but, you know, if I never see that place again, it would be too soon. So, Well, hey, if your community didn't turn into a... Uh, Charles Manson, <laughs> whatever. If you didn't turn into, hey, we murdered a bunch of people, then I think you did community success. Fine. Yeah, it's yeah, a success. Fair enough. Fair enough. No one died. No one <laughs> could always be worse. With, yeah. You know, and I, I love how yeah, I tell people I live in this potential community. And you start to describe it, and it's they're like, so are you living? Are you okay, Micah? Blink twice. Like, are you? Can you leave at your own free will? It's yeah. like, yeah, no, this is not a cult. This is. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's yeah. I mean, we definitely we joked about it, like for Halloween having getting like cloaks and things like that just to, <laughs> and it didn't help that like we like it was supposed to be like a very like justice and activism oriented co-op but it, they had been like in the globalization anti-globalization movements of like the late 90s and things like that and so a lot of folks had just been out of like like r- like real movement circles for a while just focusing on careers and, and doing whatever and so the consequence was that we it was really isolated. It was like a, it was a pretty insular co-op, um, both ideologically and then like just like literally just no one had a lot of friends, <laughs> and so um, it definitely felt like, felt pretty culty from time to time. But but that's you know. But you anymore. left and you were allowed to leave. So that, and uh, Annie like had to drag me. I was like I was I drank the Kool Aid. I was like ready to go. I was like all in. She had to like deprogram me, saying like you know, <laughs> Father Steve is like not you know, God, he's not, he's not actually here to, to lead us to salvation, um, which was something that I, you know, 
Not really. <laughs> you were like, uh, I was like, oh, I didn't realize yeah, your father, Steve. So, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's a, he's a fine person. That's good. That means you have a good partner on hand, someone who can help be that outside eyes and, and perspective, you know, yeah. kind of. I'm also a waffler, so I think that really helps also. If Annie's the bulldog, I'm, I'm the waffler. And What does that mean, the waffler? It means that I assume that I'm often wrong, and so defer to the wisdom of others, um, which is also, like, makes me very susceptible to becoming, like, a cult member. <laughs> and, and, like, living happily as a cult member, but also, like, keeps me safe in that, like, Annie as the... Like much wiser person in our relationship you know yeah she you know she tells me to to jump i, I say how high and xyz and, <laughs> and then like uh, she, if she says we need to leave this cult i'm like oh yeah you're probably right we do need to leave this cult so yeah you know come to think of it you did seem pretty eager to jump on the bandwagon to start a pray for micah church oh yeah <laughs> oh I just I was joking. I was like, "Well, this is basically church for me. I could probably get a grant for from a for a church thing." And you're like, "Yeah, well, let's let's like make these like make meals, and we could like start a <laughs> pray for Micah church weekly potlucks where we go around and, and share affirmations and yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm in. I'm I'm all in. Yeah. And then you could have the we talked about like the sort of deluxe. What was it the the Church of Micah deluxe where it was like <laughs> the private ayahuasca tours. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, that's the only specific, you know, we, we don't, that's the the behind the curtain. Right. Pray for Micah Church. No, that's, right, yeah. The, that's when you graduate to like the next like level two. Level two, two yes. Level two, right. Yeah, it is a pyramid. Yeah. I yeah, mean, right. And right. come out of your ayahuasca trip and there's me. So there's, there's <laughs> no, I, I'm not egotistical enough, uh, but you know. I guess anyone's got to be a little narcissistic to start a podcast is what I'm told. Mm -hmm. So I just accept that as like (laughs) a a humble state, a humble reality, but least narcissistic narcissist. I I know if if that's the case. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I, uh, yeah, I, I'm like you, I kind of, at this point of kind of, yeah, distance myself from wanting to be the leader of a thing, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I had enough white saverism, leadership, <laughs> church stuff going up yeah. to, to, to realize my humble place in the universe. Like I've had enough <laughs> mind, you know, breaking uh, experiences to yes, realize, my- yeah, I'm not really the shit, you know. Right, <laughs> like, right, yeah. But we're pretty cool people, I and like to think so. I, like to think I think so. we'd start a pretty reasonable cult. If I think we, it'd be cool we- as hell. <laughs> I think it'd be great because, like, you know, it would. Yeah, no, I think. There would be all the good parts. It would just be, you know, community meals. It'd be community living, you know, yeah, lots of lots of things that are probably like, I don't know what how what your podcast is rated as far as like for what audiences, but there's lots of things that the cults are good at. Yeah, are, you know, group sex, like things that would be fun. Yeah, we're I'm great at that. Yeah, no, just... <laughs> right. Uh, uh, say says. You know, satirically. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, tell me about this year. Like, what are you hoping to do? What are your kind of aspirations? I know you and Annie are getting a house, um, looking at a place. Yeah, we're looking to rent um, a house. Um, yeah, we're moving in August to a house uh, in, you know, I guess I, it's not quite South Casey, but it's 
you know, it's just south of Rockhurst. Um, and so it's going to be much better for the dog and the cats. It's got a yard. Um, I don't know, man. Like, COVID, I feel like COVID's just put me in this mood, mode where I'm, like, I don't have, like, year-long aspirations anymore. I'm just, like... Can I make it through summer? Can I make it through summer? <laughs> um, how do I, like, how do I s- start things back up again? Like, I would like to start writing more again. Um, we were talking earlier about, like, how, like... I feel very much uh, like a North Star in my life has always been not to be a leader, but to like to be a witness to things um, and to be a writer and, and, and witness things in that way and like record them. Um, and I've gotten way away from that, um, just buried myself in work in really unhealthy ways. And yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to get a healthier relationship with my job and, and kind of work more on the creative creative things that give me life and spend more time in the woods. Um, that also kind of dropped off for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, I'll go out with you to the woods this summer. Yeah. We're going to Oklahoma, uh, a few weekends from now. Really? Yeah. Uh, Wichita mountains, national wildlife refuge. I've never heard of that. It's super cool. They have Buffalo and antelope and elk. Oh, that's cool. So, and, uh, we had a friend going with us, but she ditched. So there's an extra spot. Well, look at that. Me and Loki riding back seats. Oh, yeah. You and Annie in the front. Yep. Old Lokester. <laughs> I guess Rayla would have to come too. So then uh, there's two dogs and me in the back seat. No, I'm just kidding. We could have, I mean, we can do that. We can make that work. <laughs> we can find, we can find and make that work. Find a way to make that happen. It'll be a fun, it'll be a fun summer. I know that, yeah, like you said, COVID's been hard and we've, and I, I appreciate like Ben started these like. Yeah, basically Saturday night dinners with our friends, and it's been really just um, really personal, like, uplift for me, and I think for everybody who's gone. Like, for a while, we were just doing it outside to Mm. stay distant, and now just kind of with protocols and people knowing they had COVID came back, and, and... we're now better. <laughs> yeah. You know, everyone could just feel safe around each other. Oh, okay. So you had COVID like two weeks, you know, yeah, now, yeah. you know, and, uh, yeah, I just think it's a beautiful way to do com- community. Anytime you can do food with each other with good peeps, you Dude, know? Right. That's yeah. That, that is something like from before COVID that like a def- I desperately miss is, is that sort of, yeah. Sharing food, sharing spaces, um, all the things that like give life meaning, uh, and I think the, I think the Saturday night supper club is, is really a good first step in remedying that, um, and, and kind of reclaiming that, but yeah, get out of our social, social isolation. A yeah. Bit. Yeah. And retrain us how to talk to, I don't know, our, even our friends, um, which I feel like I've suffered with for sure. <laughs> we have to learn how to people again. We need to learn how to people again. <laughs> Something. Yeah. Something it's apparently way harder than I remember it being. So, sure. Well, Ben, um, where can we find you online? Well, you can't. I've been you can't. Sp- oh. I don't. I don't exist. I'm a figment of your imagination. Are you like Ron Swanson? You're like <laughs> Parks and Rec, just like. But I'm off the grid. Like you can't find me anywhere. No, I mean like you can. I I have like Instagram. It's like Foster Carpenter. Foster Carpenter three four six is my handle. If you have any interest in following our travels, Annie and I have a blog called Cheap Trip on Medium, which you can link in the, you know, find the link in the bio of my Instagram. Um, and I post there on all sorts of things like, 
Um, you know, I do reviews of gas stations. Nice. Um, we do Annie has an ode to the road burrito review kind of series where she reviews road burritos. And then um <clears throat> and then we also talk a little bit more about the <clears throat> the work that I do with groundwork. Um, around specifically like looking at those connections between historic disinvestment through policies like redlining and then present day climate vulnerability. Um, and yeah, so that's it. And then like, I mean, if you're interested in, so Groundworks website is just groundworkusa.org. Um, that's the national networks um, website. Ours is, uh, our trust's uh, website is northeastkck.org. Um, but yeah. So that's me. I don't do Twitter. <laughs> I heard it's an awful place. Yep. It's probably going to get more awful after Elon Musk takes over. <laughs> it seems unfathomable <laughs> to me, but like there, I'm so not surprised by awful things anymore that like, okay. All right. One more. Let's tack it on there. Yeah. Yeah. Social media. That's no, good. Hey everybody, you know where you can, you can do follow pray for micropod on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, all those places. And uh, be sure to leave a review if you can. Like I said, can't say enough. Thank you all to my our patrons, people who are out there supporting the show by just sharing the content, just sharing the stories and the people, impeccable people like Ben who come on and uh, share their life with us. So until next time. Thanks for joining me for the Pray For Micah podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe on this channel and follow me on social media. Pray For Micah pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and yes, even TikTok. We'll see you next time. You are now re-entering the normal world. <laughs>